שלום, שלום, שלום. ברוכים הבאים, Welcome. Welcome to this week's Torah Musar Mindfulness called Awakening, the heat of root. I am Rabbi Chasio Uriel Steinbauer, the founder and director of the Institute for Holiness, Kehilat Musar Mindfulness, a community that takes refuge in being on this path together, whether it be through the Dharma of mindfulness or through Musar in Judaism or learning from both wisdom paths of our ancestors in a combination of what I call Musar, mindfulness of Torah, Dharma. Welcome. So for those of you who are new here today in Israel, where I am based, is Friday, December 1st at 3.30 in the morning, 3.38 to be exactly, to be exact. Um, which means for those of you uh, joining in from North America uh, or South America along the whole Eastern and Western uh, board there, it is uh, Thursday, November 30th uh, there still. Okay. And we will be covering together uh, the Parsha of Vayetze from uh, Shabbat, Saturday, November 25th, which was the 12th of Kislev. In the Hebrew uh, month of Kislev, in the Hebrew year of 5784, Tavshin Pei Dalid, today is um, now it's the 18th of Kislev. So um, we are covering what we learned uh, from the Torah through the grief and loss, and for some of us, the trauma of the genocide on October 7th in, in Israel and um, and the ongoing um, pain and manipulation uh, that's uh, caused by Palestinians and Palestinian terrorists uh, concerning uh, the captives, the hostages in, in Gaza, and of course, the war and the war that causes pain and suffering uh, on both sides. So um, many sides, I should say. So um, as you know from previous uh, gatherings, this is an attempt for us to take refuge together, to be together. Uh, for some of us, that will be on a path towards healing. For some of us, it's just going to be coping. And for some of us, it's actually going to be recovering given that uh, there are obviously Jews and even non-Jews who join us allies from all over the world, uh, the more physical distance you have from uh, the land and from the kibbutzim and the moshavim that were uh, that are and were next to uh, Aza, Gaza, um, you know, it's like these concentric circles of uh, how much you were directly impacted and then, of course, how you're impacted emotionally, soul-wise, uh, everything that's involved in being part of people uh, that obviously has um, transgenerational tra trauma, um, communal trauma. So uh, we begin. So what does this look like to be together? What it looks like is we first share together our kavana, our intention for today's session, which we do every session. So if you're joining us by video and you have a site, you have vision, 
you can see before you three kavanot, three uh, uh, intentions for today and every uh, awakening session. Those of you listening by audio, whether you're joining us uh, through the blog on the website or through uh, um, through the podcast system, whatever, wherever you uh, come in for your podcast, um, you will hear me read these out loud. So we see this time together in awakening as an act of radical self-care. We see this is uh, really helping us uh, heal and be together, to know that we're not alone and we can have this common humanity and strengthen each other through this. So we say, this is something I'm doing right now, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> to strengthen my own soul in order to be of benefit to others in the future, which is so tied to our larger kavanah that we touched upon last week of Rabbi Shimon Shkob, teaching us that our greatest desire should be to be of benefit to others, to really bear the burden with others as the altar of Kelm brought from the Kelm School of Musar, which is also touched upon Levinas and his work. So we also see this as doing an act for others, right? If we really are caring for ourselves, we are more available uh, to help care for others. And so we're doing this to strengthen our relationship with others. And we can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need us. And the final reason, covenant intention for today's session, may we merit fulfilling it, is that we're doing it to strengthen our relationship with the divine. We really want to strengthen that relationship to God so that God can support us through this, uh, be a source of strength when we need it. And so it also strengthens us through this process of really building that relationship with Hashem. We can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need us through that relationship. So those are our intentions, our kavanah for today. And uh, I will now remove them from the screen for those of you who are listening uh, quietly. Um, um so let's jump in. What I always do, if you, um, you're you not new to this, uh, let me pull up my notes right here. I think I'm a little bit disorganized. Give me one second. <laughs> I cracked myself up. <laughs> you got to have a sense of humor when you do this, right? Um, let's see if I have it in my notes here. If not, I'll have to just pull it up. Basically, what I do is I give you a summary, right? We give a summary of the Torah portion. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to pull up my notes on my computer. Uh, normally, I'm more organized for you. I apologize. Um, so in this summary, we just basically cover... Um, the, the 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 bullet points right the most important uh, part of why we do this for, uh, like what what's covered under the torah portion essentially right um so that uh, right say yes um so that we know what's covered for those of you for instance who um may not um, have read the Torah portion yet. 
and uh, we'll be able to have a basic understanding of what's going to be covered under all this, okay? And why we're what we're learning for, you know, from it today, okay? Um, so I'm pulling that up for us right now, my notes, and then we can um, now. Okay, thank you for your patience. Um, so in this week's uh, Torah portion, as I told you, it's um, covering uh, up to Yud Bet, uh, the 12th of uh, Kislev. Uh, Yaakov, our third patriarch. Um, we had Avraham, we have Yitzhak, his son, and then the son of, one of the sons of Yitzhak is Yaakov. He has to flee um, because his, he's angered his brother so much that his brother wants to consider murdering him. So his mother, uh, Rivka, who is married to uh, Yitzhak, tells him he must run away. He must flee uh, from Beersheba, where they're located, uh, to travel to her brother, which is, excuse me, his uncle, known as Levan. And on this journey, so first of all, you, you have to understand that this is um, in the understanding of the Torah and understanding of the Jewish tradition. This is like um, <clears throat> one of the first exiles. It's actually described as the first exile um, of um, <clears throat> a patriarch and in the Jewish tradition. I'm going to touch on that later because it's only through, uh, through our practice that we begin to understand that that's just one narrative. And that we actually have something else to um, see and practice here and learn from. So we'll touch upon that later. Uh, while he's on, so you can imagine this is a teenager who's had to flee on his own. Nobody travels alone in the ancient Near East. So just get some concept, uh, you know, understanding here. He's on his own. He um, is, is fearful. Uh, uh, when he ends up uh, falling asleep uh, in a, in a makom that he actually kind of bumps into, which uh, lots of commentators have to say that God set up this encounter for him to have to go to sleep. He goes to sleep at nightfall and he dreams of a sunam, a ladder, essentially. And it's a ladder that's going up to the heavens with angels going up it and down it. Okay. And... Hashem, God tells Yaakov that his descendants uh, will inherit Eretz Canaan, which is uh, the land of Canaan, which part of it is uh, Israel today, and that God will protect him. And then Yaakov, uh, light-footed now, his feet have to actually carry him, uh, continues his journey until he encounters a well. So much of our stories happen at wells because that's where people gather to have water for themselves and their animals. And this is where he meets Rachel. He encounters Rachel, daughter of Levan, one of the daughters of Levan. And Yaakov then, uh, through in meeting her and then being brought to the family, uh, works as a shepherd for Levan, his uncle, uh, essentially as an indentured servant for seven years, in exchange for the bride price, essentially, for marrying Rachel. But Levan, and possibly the daughters, uh, definitely Leah, uh, 
tricks Yaakov into marrying um, the older daughter named Leah first. Okay. Um, there's a, she's veiled. It's a disguise. It's deception, which if you recall, Yaakov had engaged in deception to his blind dying father, Yitzhak, where he dressed up or his mother dressed him as his brother Esau, who was hairy, to pretend that he was Esau in order to steal the blessing. So Yaakov agrees uh, to work for an additional seven years in exchange for marrying Rachel as well, because that, that first agreement uh, ended up being for Leah, uh, because he has to marry the, the eldest first. Um, and then Rachel and Leah, eh, along with their um, servants, Bilcha and Zilpa, um, through lots of trial, uh, end up giving birth to 11 boys and one girl in, uh, in total. So Yaakov continues to work uh, for sheep as payment. And, um, and he says, not but, but and, he says that Levan has not treated him well at all. And so he turns to Rachel and Leah, the first time they are one mind, uh, to return to his family home in Eretz Canaan. When Levan finds out that they've left, he decides to flee again. Yaakov decides to flee again. When Levan finds out that they have fled, that they have left, he chases after them. But God tells Levan in a dream not to harm them. That Yaakov and Levan make an agreement. They finally are of equals, equal status. They make an agreement to separate from each other. Um, probably the most mature thing that either man did in that whole 20 years that they were together. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, so um, that is our summary. <laughs> now. Obviously, we can't cover everything in the Torah portion. We never can. We can never get to everything. And we will get to our practice of mindfulness meditation. Uh, we're going to be addressing um, grief and loss in particular, swallowing a loss, which is about metabolizing, which is about if um, really being with as, as much as we can. So let's jump in. What, I, what do I want to cover here? So... Um, What's come up now in these, what, 50-something days since um, the genocide on October 7th is a real deep grief among our people. It's as if the, it's really becoming embodied, what has happened and what we're witnessing and, and just the, the ongoing um, manipulation uh, and the ongoing pain of witnessing so many people across the world who... Um, are really anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. Um, it's really beginning to weigh heavy. And for some of us, it's coming out uh, uh, with rage and anger uh, that might be even um, hurting us inside. And often the, range, the, the anger is uh, not masking, but uh, is there almost as a protective layer for the pain, for the sadness, for the deep, deep grief and loss. And, and that's what that's what you can see on many of our people's faces and behind their eyes is just that deep grief and loss, right? And at all the injustice, 
And so for some people that can turn into revenge or vengeance, uh, um, which is so modeled beautifully by our ancestor Asaf, and I'm including him as our as our part of our ancestor because um, he is the twin of uh, Rivka and Yitzhak, right? Full Jews, full Hebrews, full people who reproduce two sons. One, of course, that is told by God that will inherit the tradition of the Jewish people being passed down. And the other who will, of course, in his own right, will kind of have his own lineage of his own uh, 12 tribes, 12 princes of the people. And also joining almost, I would say, um, the people and traditions of Yishmael, okay, which is also a family member by, he is the uh, half son, the full son, obviously, of Avraham, but he, his mother is Hagar, not Sarah, who is our first matriarch. So Esau is our model here that when someone goes through such injustice, and grief and loss, right? As he did last Torah portion, where his brother uh, manipulated him, uh, would give him only give him food under duress after he had been out hunting for days and was starving, that he sell his birthright in exchange for that. Uh, that that should have never held as a legal agreement when it's under duress such as that. And then again, when Yaakov dressed up as him, his mother dressed him up in Aesop's clothing and put uh, animal fur on him in order to lie and deceive, it, to manipulate to his father that he was Aesop in order to steal, to take the blessing that was meant for Aesop. Okay, so um, the, 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 the response, I should say the reactivity to Aesop finding out that um, someone had deceived and taken his blessing and that someone was his full brother, his twin brother, Yaakov, and that his father therefore couldn't give him the same blessing or that blessing. He's having intense uh, grief and loss and it comes out in rage. And that type of rage that... Um, is the type that immediately goes to vengeance and revenge, planning, planning in order to maybe have some power in the situation, planning to feel like you could do something about the situation, planning that you could cause the pain, the hurt that you're feeling to the person who caused it, right? And that is essentially what Esau plans to do to, Ye to Yaakov. He is planning to murder him after their father passes away. Okay, so that's 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 one of our models that's what we here in recovering in grief and loss could potentially head towards that type of reactivity where we are just going to um essentially uh lose it <laughs> and start having vengeance revengeance fantasies and wanting to cause harm and suffering for instance to the palestinians to hamas to hezbollah to Islamic Jihad, to all the terrorist groups, to all uh, Arab Muslims. It could just go on and on and on, right? In these concentric circles, right? Like who, uh, who's your target? So Asav is this model. And what's beautiful about him as a model is that he comes out of it. 
We don't know that process. We don't get to witness it in the Torah, but he comes out of it. He does his own coping. He does his own healing. He does his own recovery. Call it what you want. But by the time we meet him next week, coming this actually tomorrow in Shabbat, in the Torah portion, Vaishlach, we get to witness a man who is, is amazing, right? He's had the physical distance from the injuring party, Yaakov, for 20 years. So sometimes we have to have real physical distance from the injuring party. We're going to address that. That's what we Jews, what we Israelis need from the injuring party, from the Gazans, from the Palestinians, from Hamas, right? Until we have a de-Hamasification, a de-Nazification, right? Where we can then have a partner of your state, our state, shared society, right? That we're trying to do with Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries. So this is what Asab does. He comes around, he has this physical distance uh, from the injuring party for 20 years. He, in the moment, uh, even in this Torah portion, he strategizes when he realizes he doesn't have his parents' uh, acceptance about who he married, who he arranged to marry, that he goes ahead and marries who uh, they feel is more ac uh, acceptable, which is, of course, someone in the lineage of Yishmael, Yish um, so he goes ahead and strategizes and um, marries who is considered more proper uh, in alignment with his parents' values to receive an ex acceptance and love. And then he goes on to build his own life. He builds his own people. He builds amazing success, right? So much so by the time we're privileged to witness him uh, tomorrow in tomorrow's Torah portion of Aishlak, uh, he is a man who, who shows up with 400 men with him in order to travel to meet his brother, his twin brother, Yaakov, right? To help escort him home. So that's, we're going to start with that as a, a profound model for us, right? Um, so we're going to move to Yaakov just briefly, okay? His twin brother, where uh, when he sets off on his journey, He's this uh, lost teenage boy who is fleeing, right? He's running away from the fear that he's going to potentially be murdered by his brother. And um, he, when he, um, he moves through great doubt. Okay. We, uh, when we talk about the, the things that can emerge as hindrances and obstacles, doubt is one of the hugest, uh, it's considered of the five hindrances in uh, the Dharma practice and, and the path and learning, doubt is the, the strongest, right? It's what can get in way of our practice and healing and coping. So uh, Yaakov, when he encounters God uh, through that dream, for that sulam I had mentioned, right? He really uh, doubts the word of God. He shows a lack of faith in God's promise. There's a sense that he is heavy, right? He's heavy in and, and, and um, not really, there's a pause there. There's um, maybe even a little bit of fawning that goes on in response where he's, well, if you do this, then I'll do that. Like there's just disbelief, there's doubt. And doubt can run so strong in us that uh, we can't be fully present for the connection uh, and the authenticity of it, the integrity of the encounter and God's word to us. 
And we have to be aware of that today, that we can be full of so much doubt that we're going to get through this, that we're going to be able to get rid of Hamas and all the terrorists and be able to live and in safety and peace long term. It's going to take so long. It's going to take generations. I'm going to tell you, it's going to take beyond our children and grandchildren that we, we have doubt. We have doubt in the path. We have doubt in recovery. We have doubt in coping. We have doubt in healing, right? It's us doubting God and this connection. And that's what Yaakov was going through. We can witness this, right? And um, he is, it's beauty. I mean, talk about God knowing what he needed in that moment, just like what we need in this moment. He achieves God's closeness, God's protection, God's presence. I mean, it's just phenomenal what God says to him and how he'll be there for him that no other patriarch was ever treated this way. Um, it's almost as if God recognized and deeply in this moment what this boy needed, right? And uh, that's what we need, right? So it's very important that we also, when we have those encounters, that we be open to God's closeness, to God's protection, to God's presence, like our ancestor. So what happens with Yaakov? How do we witness this, that he's is starting to embody and internalize God's protection and closeness? His feet actually carry him after he has the stream of the Sulam. He starts going on like light feet. Woo! I don't have doubt anymore. <laughs> I can do this. I can go from Beersheba all the way, way up north, right? Into a different land. Badana Aram, right? So far. And he does it. And uh, that that's going to unfold for us too over time. It might not be right away. Of course not. I mean, some of us feel very heavy, very heavy in our bodies. It's hard to get up and move and do what we need to do. And others, you know, all of us are uh, on our own path, which we should be to this recovery or coping or healing. Okay. So just to honor where you are and how it feels in the body, right? To come to that awareness. So Yaakov ends up being really light in his feet. And um, the final thing I'll say about him, I mean, I have a couple more tidbits I want to share from the the Torah portion. And then I want to talk about Rachel and Leah. Um, Is that, um, and this is what Nahama Libowitz brings to us in her wonderful collection of commentary um, about uh, even though Yaakov moves on with his life, right? Like he ends up marrying four women, ends up reproducing 11 sons and one daughter, uh, you know, produces so much uh, wealth um, in some ways about, you know, with sheep over 20 years. Um, He can't get away from the consequences, right? of his behavior of what he did to his father and his brother. Um, This is what we call the law of karma, which is really the law of cause and effect. That you do something, you cause something, there's going to be an effect. And it might not happen to you immediately. It might not even happen in your lifetime. There's this concept that'll happen either later or it manifests in some other way. And so for here, uh, what does Nahama say? She says, and I love, this is one of my favorite quotes by her. 
she says consequence, right? She says sin and deceit, which is what she sees Yaakov's behavior towards his father, right? When he dresses up like Asaph and even evokes God's name and lies to him and, say, and says he's Asaph. Sin and deceit, however justified, keep that, those words in mind, however justified, bring in their train ultimate punishment. That's page 324. Those are very powerful words. Why is she saying even however justified? Because in rabbinic tradition, it is well understood and accepted and expounded upon that really God shows Yaakov, God let Rivka know that the youngest was going to be the inheritor of this tradition and people, that this was meant to be all along. And then they can come up with, Hundreds of reasons why Asav wasn't worthy of being the one to inherit this. You can go through all this exegesis and find all this. And so she's saying, you know, I, she she's giving a nod to rabbinic tradition, which of course she has to. God bless her soul. Uh, she is giving a nod that you know this is uh, uh, his behavior was justified. He he was following the his mother's orders, which of course you follow your parents' orders back then, or you you attempt to. Um, he he was being the good son. He followed her orders, and that's it. So uh, she sees it, it. She understands that it's justified, but in the end, even if it's justified, so how do we say this in and the actual path of Musar mindfulness? We say that. If you want to use the language of justify, that's right. But it's just recognizing that even when we must behave, when we must respond, when we must act, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be cause and effect. And I mentioned this last week. We as Israelis must respond to this genocide. We must stop Hamas. We must actually have to rid Gaza and possibly the West Bank of Hamas and any terrorist, any terrorist activity, any terrorist we have to then go through years of dehamasification, which means getting rid of the whole education and philosophy and ideology that's part of who the Gazans are, part of who the Palestinians are. This is huge, right? And it's going to be part of the cause and effect of our consequences of our lives that we have to go through this and be the ones, God willing, with allies who have to do this cleaning up right? Hopefully, eventually with allies of also Palestinians, we have, we have them abroad who are very supportive and on the same page that know that the need, this needs to be done, but we need it from the buy-in of the actual people and we might not have it, right? But we can't have this as a, as a across the border as a part of our neighbors, right? So we need to face that uh, there's going, this is part of the, there will be consequences. So let's move on to um and, and what it what just so you know the background more Yaakov deceived right he then is deceived he's deceived by Leah he's deceived by Levan he's even deceived by Rachel and um and then they end up uh, producing children especially Leah and Rachel who will be divided against each other uh for years there's a huge rift between the wives and there'll be a rift between the children who even will later on will sell one of their own into slavery. It, it, it's almost like you're watching a train wreck like about to happen. Can it possibly get worse? Well, 
we didn't think it could get worse here in Israeli society. And then we have this genocide of October 7th. It could get worse and we've seen it. We're trying to survive this day by day. So just know that, okay? All right, let's move in. <laughs> it comes out in Yaakov's behavior, right? When someone has to face every day, which he doesn't, this is why he's going to end up in Vaishlak wrestling with himself and an angel man because he's so tormented with his own suffering, right? That's caused by his own behavior, consequences of it, right? So he ends up being cruel, 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 causing harm and suffering to his own favorite beloved wife, Rachel. He actually says to her, can I take God's place when she comes to him with the pain that she is not reproducing children, particularly sons for him, right? He, he doesn't comfort her. He doesn't listen to her. He says, can I take God's place, right? And um, we have this understanding that um, in the Jewish tradition that when someone says something in suffering, they can't be blamed, Okay. So we have to keep that in mind. So we understand that Rachel came and suffering was like, you know, just ugh, like that kind of vomiting, right? Comes in suffering. And this is his response. Can I take God's place really full of anger, right? And when we're full of anger, we act out inappropriately. We really do. We cause harm and suffering. We have to remember then that Yaakov was also suffering, a very quiet suffering. Right. There's a um, there's a coping going on. There isn't healing and there isn't recovering. There's a coping. Uh, he's a good model to look at what it looks like to cope for 20 years. That type of healing and recovery won't happen until he wrestles with himself and that angel coming up tomorrow on Shabbat and Vaishlach. We'll witness and talk about that. Okay. So um, let's go into this brief. Uh, uh, we got to know this biography of Yaakov, right? And his as his own independent patriarch, right? This is who he is, his own personality. Um, he ends up, you know, leaving as this home-bodied son who uh, had an overprotective mother, you know, uh, basically kind of told by God that this would uh, end up happening. We see him be tested and refined, his personality molded, transformed, right, over this time. And something very important has to happen here on his journey um, is that the first is when he does encounter God uh, after his dream and realizes the holiness of that encounter in that space, he says, um, he's essentially saying to us, like he first says, I don't know, I didn't know God was here, right? He's saying, I'm not worthy of this place. I'm not worthy of this encounter. He's almost beginning to face the the railroad, right? The the train on the tracks. Uh, he's he doesn't. When you say in total disbelief, I didn't know God was here. It's because you're saying, I don't believe myself worthy to encounter God. And why would he? He's a teenager who just was manipulated and and controlled by his mother to do this thing. He also lied. Total animal brain can't hold him 100% responsible, even though he is past bar mitzvah age. And, and he has eternalized that he's just really not worthy of in, in, in inhabiting this blessing and um, 
this birthright and to be the next patriarch. It's just, it's so obvious in his language, right? And so he is going to learn responsibility over time. And he's also going to learn um, service, what he's called upon to do. Uh, I'm looking at what else I wanted to share with you. Um, we see so much of this language, this verb to serve, right? It, it comes up in the narrative of him having to serve Levon and serve for Leah and then serve for the bride price of Leah and the bride price of uh, Rachel. It comes up seven times in the narrative. Um, so we're learning here and watching here that when for one to, to be worthy, right, of that encounter with God and God's protection uh, is through building slowly responsibility through service. And this is what he's had to do for 20 years. So, okay, now we're going to look at some other suffering as models of grief and loss for us. And then we'll move into our meditation. So first we have Leah, right? She has unbelievable unhappiness, uh, suffering. The first arrow, as we understand it in the Dharma, is that she she wasn't loved by her husband. Okay, he he loved her sister Rachel. The second arrow is her reactivity, constant craving and desiring for his love. If I just produce enough boys, enough male children. He will love me. That's that's her thinking. That's the narrative. That's the storytelling. Poor woman. She produces son after son after son. She's the, the larger. She produces more than all three women combined. Okay. And she still doesn't get his love. Okay. So this is intense, right? Think about all in our own narrative in life about how much we might be having a certain um, circumstance in life, right? So our circumstance right now is this the horrible genocide and the hostages and this war. And then there can be our reactivity. Are we having any craving and desire for things to be different than what they are? Are we having aversion to the situation that we're at? So much so that we're not being here with the way things are right here and right now. So just know that that brings in that train, right? <laughs> it's not pleasant. So, um, what else from my notes I wanted to share with you. Um, <clears throat> and then we go into the model of Rachel, her sister, her younger sister, Leah's younger sister, and her suffering, right? She has suffering also. Her first arrow, the, 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 the stimuli, the situation, is that she's childless, childless for a huge part of this. <laughs> she just, it, her womb is like shut, right? And, um, the reactivity to that is this um, desperation, the, this desire, right? Um, uh, where there's so much aversion also going on, uh, where she feels like she's going to die. Uh, um, you know, it, it's the consequence of shame, essentially, in a society that um, basically values only women who reproduce and women who reproduce boys, males. So, um, you know, and then, and then when she's uh, so upset about it and turns to her beloved, the man that supposedly loves her more than anything, right? Who were seven years past, like nothing, right? He's so in love with her. He didn't even realize he was working for her for seven years. He can't even give her a kind word at her most needed moment where she says, I feel like I'm going to die. 
what if I don't have children? He says, what, can I take the place of God? It's like, no, you could have just held me and listened to me in that moment. <laughs> like, are we really asking you, Yaakov, to be God? So we have to watch like the reactivity. Are we being present for our pain and how much pain it's causing? And can we see each other in our suffering and pain, the common humanity, and be able to just be present for it without getting angry or impatient at, at each other, saying such things as, can I take the place of God? No, we're not going to follow that trajectory, right? Okay. So, um, and, and just to give you some examples of this, when, if for instance, we are very much in the Jewish tradition, believers in this concept of from Rabbi um, uh, Dessler's work, this idea of uh, there's a givers and there's takers. And it's better to be a giver, certainly, but there's also value in being a taker. If there weren't any takers, then there couldn't be givers, right? But here, when Rachel so desperately wants the mandrakes, which is basically like a fertility device to try to help women get pregnant, when she goes and really wants these mandrakes from her sister, her sister gives them to her, what, in exchange that she gets to have intercourse with her husband that night. Yes, she has to buy that time with him. So she's the giver. She gives the mandrakes. And who, what does she get? She gets three more children. Three more children in response to that giving in the mandrakes, right? But she still doesn't receive love. She still doesn't receive the love, the thing that she wants most. And the taker, which is Rachel, who takes those mandrakes, she will not have children for three more years. Okay? So we're we're, we're told and passed on by our ancestors and God, these, these traditions and these stories in order to have us pause and think, okay, how am I going to get through this moment? I'm going to learn to be a giver, no matter how hard it is, no matter if I don't feel loved. So they finally come to one mind, sisters, Rachel and Leah, from a common injustice. And this is what we see in the Jewish people right now. You might have noticed in Israel before the genocide of October 7th, we were an angry people towards each other sometimes, very divided sometimes, secular, religious, different segments of the religious community, Arab-Israeli, Jewish-Israeli, Palestinian-Israeli, lots of divisions, right? But what happens in Israeli society in general, maybe excluding some of the Arab Muslims who are also citizens, is this coming together of one mind when we face an injustice, when we face a common enemy. And this is what the sisters do, Rachel and Leah. They essentially, Levan, their, um, their older brother, um, Actually, I think here he might actually be a father, right? He's the father of them. I'm, I think, no, he's the older brother of um, Rivka. So he's the father of them. He actually uses all of their money, their the wealth that Yaakov worked the 14 years for them, essentially, right? He actually even worked longer. He worked like 20 years total. And that money that was supposed to be like set aside, almost like in an account to earn interest, right? It's supposed to be there for the women to uh, be there for them in need. Um, it's just known that as part of the bride price, you put that money aside. 
Um, so uh, that money's gone. If there, it, it's just not any any wealth that Levon gained uh, from the labor of Yaakov has been spent or used. And so this is also the first time where we see a um, big part in healing of grief and uh, loss and in trauma literature is that we have to uh, start paying attention to where we feel appreciated. And I mentioned last week where we have allies, right? That's a big one, but also where we um, feel appreciated, seen, loved. And this is the first place where we see Yaakov being appreciated by his wives. First time, right? They are of one mind, they have a common enemy, the injustice of Levan, and they appreciate him and all the work that he's done. They agree with him that it's time to leave, it's time to flee. <laughs> uh, and and that's, the, that's essentially um, uh, where they all head together, okay? And so they actually uh, flee, as I said, they don't actually ask for permission to leave. They tried, you know, he tried that earlier, Yaakov. And so they head off. Um, Obviously, there's still more um, deception going on in the sense of not being fully transparent that you were trying to leave, but this is part of it. Um, okay, the final thing I want to share with you, which I think is so key to our path of either healing, coping, or recovery, wherever you are on your own path here, is Yaakov as the son of Yitzhak has to witness his father's terror, his father's trauma. And he actually, we finally hear and see that he has done this when he refers to his father as the, uh, essentially the language that is used is Had not the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Yitzhak. Okay, and so just to look at this language, it's very important here. Okay, what is he saying? What does Pachad Yitzhak mean? It's a unique divine title that is deeply embedded in this verse, and it conveys a double meaning. It can mean the one whom Yitzhak reveres, or it can mean the one who Yit, uh, the one of Yitzhak who caused terror, and God most certainly caused terror in Yitzhak and his heart, and even in Avraham's heart when he told Avraham to sacrifice Yitzhak. Right? It was a, it was a test. We don't believe that Yitzhak knew it was a test. Why would he even go through with it if it was a test? And he thinks that he either is supposed to be sacrificed, maybe bought into it, maybe didn't. And he went through horrible terror and fear. And so much so that he doesn't speak to his father again. They go in different directions, right? He loses his mother immediately after. So also then Yaakov, the next generation, he is the son of Yitzhak, comes to, I would say, the first healing practice that he engages in here by recognizing out loud in front of Levan and everyone that it was the God of Abraham and fear of Yitzhak, meaning not fear of Yitzhak, the one of Yitzhak who caused terror. He had been with me. That God who caused my father terror had been with me this whole time. And that's why I'm not sent away empty-handed. That's why I'm protected. That's why I'm in lo love. That's why I am here and surviving all this. 
that's very profound to look at your, I mean, for some of us, we have to still do this with our own parents or grandparents, right? This sense of being witness to their own terror and trauma, whether it's through God or through being Israeli, through the relationship with Palestinians, with terrorists, um, we all have to, to look at that. So this is his first healing practice, right? He was a product essentially of this, like he he was born into a family that was dealing with this terror and trauma, the father, after all these years. And, uh, in, and this is perhaps why he's protected by Hashem now and was protected by him um, when he was a teenager fleeing. That maybe this is God's way of showing up and being like, I caused that terror to Yitzhak, your father, and I know I need to show up and be there for you now, or you're going to go through your own terror having to go on this trip by yourself. Okay, so um, the second and last thing I want to say, which is really um, intense and amazing, which is um, the place that he encounters God. The place that he encounters God, according to our tradition, when he says, you know, what is this place? Mahamakom Hazeh, right? Um, our sages explain that this is Har Moriya, which is the place of the Akedah, of the binding of Yitzhak, the binding of his father by his grandfather, Avraham, right? This is where he was bound to be sacrificed. This is where the future Beit Mikdash, our temple and temples will stand, okay, according to tradition. So this place, Hamakom, eh, this is... Eh, where he is. And so Yaakov had to return or show up, be present for, to the site of the terror and the trauma of his father in order to metabolize the loss, the grief and the loss, and chew on this loss and swallow this loss, right? To digest that his father was not present for him that his father did not love him the way he loved his brother Esau. That boy had to go to the makom of the terror of his father to realize why his father did not love him the way he needed in order to work through that grief and loss. That is huge. And that's something that we can use. There are those of us, and, and, and think about all of our brethren who were murdered or those who were terrorized and survived all those towns along Gaza will have to return someday, right? They have to return to that Makom and face that terror and that trauma in order for us to, over time, metabolize and chew and swallow that grief and loss. And so this is a model in this Torah portion for us through our ancestor to realize what is the sun doing? What is the son doing in this moment? And, 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 and is he conscious of it? We could argue all day whether that's true or not, but this is what we're witnessing. Very profound uh, begins on to be on this path of healing. Um, the thing I will close with that I, I mentioned and needs to be mentioned is that in our paths of healing, coping, recovery, 
Um, we will over time, some of us be able to tap into our shared humanity with others who are suffering with other Jews across the world, um, for even other non-Jews, for instance, uh, Arab Muslims who um, might also be being attacked or treated awful, like in the United States when uh, one was shot or the, uh, the last three men who were just shot. Um, we might be able to have a sense of shared humanity for um, those Palestinians or Arab Muslims in um, the West Bank and Gaza who truly aren't uh, uh, of the same heart and mind uh, of Hamas. Um, and so developing that common humanity over time is a key part of learning here. And I'll just say that I was told, I was taught for years that, uh, and this comes from Esther, Esther uh, Takat's uh, book, uh, Genesis, and the book, the book with 70 faces, a guide for the family. She says in there um, that the first tears of the Torah um, are Yaakov's here when he cries out, when he encounters Rachel and embraces her. And I bought that for a long time. I used to be really be into it, think, oh, the first tears of the Torah. And then I suddenly went, wait a minute wait a minute, what? That's crazy, right? What about Yishmael? What about Hagar? They both are crying out when they were exiled, when they were sent out by Avraham based on Sarah's orders, right? They are, they, they have, they are crying out. They have tears, right? The language and the verbs might be different from crying out versus uh, tears um, or uh, yeah, there's there, there are different verbs that are used, right? And and then also Esav. Esav, when he comes home from hunting to find out that his blessing has been taken, that's the that, I think that's the loudest and biggest and most traumatic cry in the whole Torah. The, the closest coming to it might be Yosef crying out from the well uh, to his brothers uh, while they sit down to have a meal just the cruelty, right? So Asav is, is crying out. And, and and also we were told that, right, like uh, I was always taught and bought into that uh, the first exile, and this comes from Nacham it's the first exile of uh, our people is Yaakov here who has to flee, um, has to actually leave Eretz Kanaan uh, because he might be murdered. And I was thinking, no, that's not true. The first exile, the first you know, kicking out is uh, Yishmael and uh, Hagar. And they have to, they have to leave. Um, and I bring this up. Uh, in order for us to begin to uh, almost have a little pocket in our heart, just go, oh, yeah, maybe I'll revisit that someday when I'm ready, when I'm able to when I can start to look at your the common humanity of the pain and suffering that we share, the grief and the loss, you might not be ready to, to hear this or say this now, and that's okay. But I'm, I am here to witness and say that Yishmael 
is the son of Abraham, which is our first patriarch. He's part of our extended family, whether we account him as part of the Jewish people passed on through the patriarchs and matriarchs. Asaph is the full son of Yitzhak and Rivka. He is part of our extended family. Again, he might not have received the, the blessing to inherit the land the way that it's passed down through the patriarchs and matriarchs, but they're there. They're there. And it can only be, to be honest with you, long-term healing and recovery for us to widen our tent, to be able to face that we have more family here. And we can we can hold it, we can be with, we can do what like Rumi says in his poem, The Guest House. Eventually, someday we might be able to be with this. We can invite in Yishmael, we can invite in Asaph. There's room for your crying out in tears too. I recognize you, I see you, I see your pain. That can only heal us and make us stronger long term. So with that, we're going to move into our meditation on grief and loss. Please assume one of the four postures. For me, it's going to be seated, upright, not West Point stiff, as John Kabat-Zinn says, one of our teachers. But you want to sit dignified, created in the image and likeness of the divine if you are choosing to be seated, really heavy in the sit bones, really embodied. Feet on the ground, held by Mother Earth, really present for this. The heavier, the better, because it really uh, allows you to be here in the present moment, really embodied, so that we don't go off somewhere else and not be here in the present moment, which is where we want to be together. So I want you to close your eyes if you feel safe and comfortable. Otherwise, just lower your gaze. And we're going to just slow it down for a few minutes, right? To just open into something maybe quiet, maybe experiential for some of you. Allow yourself a deep inhalation and exhale. Inviting ease, inviting presence, that type of stillness, the gift that we can give to ourselves for really being here together. And we're going to just take a minute best you can to consider our loss, our grief. We're going to feel into it as much as we can. Just being aware if there's any limitation in our deep acceptance of whatever is true as true. Doesn't mean that you like it. Doesn't mean that it's good, but it's true. Can we feel embodied and really surrender to what is true, which is that we have such profound loss and grief, and for some of us, trauma. Can we be with this without a shred of resistance? And if you are resisting, 
There's no need to beat yourself up for that or judge. Just recognize I'm having resistance. I'm feeling resistance. This is what resistance feels like. It's naming it. Seeing if you can be developing your own best friendship with yourself where you're witnessing, maybe with curiosity, maybe not. Maybe with what we call the beginner's mind, maybe not. Just recognizing what is true right here and right now. This can take the form of being aware of our loss and grief and all the stuff around it. How hurtful, how unjust. Can we be aware of it? In our bodies, can we have a sense of letting go of any resistance to the face of it? Can we feel any deep acceptance of this truth of the loss? For some of you, it might be better to use the terminology of a sense of surrender and not acceptance. Surrendering to the fact of our loss, of our grief, of the trauma. Can we accept the fact of the genocide of October 7th? Can we accept the fact of what happened? Can we accept the fact of the anger and reactivity to maybe even the storytelling that we were not prepared? We did not know for whatever reason that will be investigated with time. Are we able to totally allow what has occurred to move through it? The feeling of this. We will take a minute or two just to explore a surrendering or accepting of what is true. slowly accepting or submitting the realness 
what is real, we don't get stuck in it. With practice over time, we become freer in our relationship to it. We're able to recognize what is true. Being aware of the loss. Is there any intuition for you? Any intuition is how you will cope, how you will recover if there's even such a thing or how you will heal new ways of being, of living, new settings, new people, people we have lost, people are still missing. New activities, these small and brief ways that add up over time, day in and day out, as we head towards two months after the genocide. Any intuition into these environments, a new path to least even start or consider. And it is very appropriate if in response right now, you are sitting with, I am not ready to do anything differently. I am not ready to step in. I'm not even ready to think about doing anything differently or stepping in. But over time, we might be ready to think about thinking about how in this moment, it'll be something new. And the next moment, it'll be something new. And that's okay. That's good enough right now. And for some of us, a new kind of you is emerging. Even one small identity. For some of us, it's radicalized. Tapping into the deep well for some of us, a strength we didn't know that we had. Giving ourselves more room to breathe, to respond to allow us to feel our anger. We'll never leave completely who we are behind. It will always be with us. But over time, there will be new ways of being. And we can process loss by letting go of old ways or reactivity sometimes. For some of us, we've been bracing against never again our whole lives. 
bracing against the worst thing possible that we could imagine in our lives. And now the worst possible thing has happened. We don't need to keep bracing so much. We survived it for those of us who have. We don't want it. But we can stand. And over time, it will be a little less guarded, but much more full of wise discernment. Coming to a full awareness of how hard life is right now for so many of us and for so many, many, many people. Having going through hard times right now in addition to us, opening our heart allows us to tap into that common humanity to understand that this is really one day at a time, this practice of self-compassion. So what's landing for you now about perhaps just breathing, being here with me embodied to the grief and loss, knowing that with every breath, it shifts. It may not feel like it. It may feel very stuck. But like our breath, everything is impermanent. Everything will change. And what lands for some of us is a sense of how finite life is. The limitation. The time-boundedness of it. Only so many days and minutes left. Over time, we feel that we might be able to sit into that new kind of view, perhaps one with a sense of of awakening to the good, giving thanks, this kind of seizing of the day, growing appreciation for the preciousness of life that we have been given another day. Maybe that is a new kind of us. When we come out of this meditation, it's okay to write down whatever comes to mind for you. Make a list. Say, consider how you might try something new. Maybe the gift of reading a book you've always wanted to read. Maybe calling that friend and having lunch. And we'll learn through time that we will know how to disengage much more quickly with certain kinds of contentious, contentiousness, argumentativeness of other people knowing that it just does not feed that which is wise wholesome, kind and gentle, 
just unproductive. To know that there is whole segments of the world that are never going to acknowledge what we need them to. Never going to open to the facts as they are. They don't want to believe. So we will make note to ourselves. We will stay out of the quarrel because we actually don't need their validation. We know the truth. And we know that they have their own sickness and suffering that they will have to come to terms with. There could be a kind of allowing that involves not knowing. Not over planning. Over time, we will develop a kind of trusting in ourselves, making room for that which is wholesome, for that which is wise, for that which is just and right in our lives. We will care for and take care of each other. We will bear the burden together. You are not alone. Slowly and gently come out of the meditation. When you are ready, giving yourself a bow to Hashem and a bow to yourself and your practice, a bow to taking refuge in this community and joining us for awakening Torah, Musar, mindfulness. I'm deeply grateful that you took this time to practice self-care, radical self-care, so that with me, we can bring God's good to others. I'm Rabbi Chasio Oriel Steinbauer. Thank you again, and I look forward to covering Vayishlach after Shabbat. Take care of yourselves.